Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Christine, chapters 20 to 34. Let's start the show. In part two of Christine, Arnie, Teenage Love Songs, the narrator changes from Dennis Gilder to a third-person omniscient narrator. Despite changes in his personality, Arnie's relationship with Lee escalates. Although he has fixed up Christine, Arnie continues to battle with his parents and ends up having to store the car at airport parking. Buddy Repperton and his crew find out where Christine is and destroy her. But between work done by Arnie and something else, Christine ends up good as new. Christine then proceeds to murder Moochie Welch, which causes a police detective to question Arnie. Lee suspects something is wrong and visits Dennis, who is developing feelings for her. Finally, Lee almost chokes to death while in Christine and is convinced that the car is involved. After a hitchhiker saves her, she breaks up with Arnie, who has taken on more of LeBay's attributes. Damn, Jay, lots going on. Yeah, so much going on. But why don't we start with a little bit of discussion about the change in narrative structure? Yeah, it's sort of shocking. The prologue is written from Dennis's point of view, first person. The whole first part of this book is from Dennis's first person point of view. And then you open up this chapter and bam, we're in third person omniscient. And we're in this sort of godlike view of the book where we see events that are happening from a, a perspective of outside of of anyone, we do get some third person close where we get the thoughts and feelings of Lee and Dennis and, and Arnie's parents at different times. But yeah, total change in uh in tone here. And it's really jarring at first because we spent a lot of time talking about how Dennis is this interesting character in in telling the story and he's really close to Arnie and has all these feelings and he's able to put this all down on paper and then all of a sudden, boom, we're in third person. Why is that, Jay? It kind of feels like this might be King painting himself out of a narrative corner in that King tends to be more of a gardener type of author rather than an architect. And in that he creates these characters, imbues them with a a kind of life, and then lets them tell him what the story is to a degree. His character of Dennis ends up in a coma and then it for an extended hospital stay. So he effectively took his narrator out of the story. Yep. So short of using some sort of in-story device to give Dennis some some kind of post facto knowledge of all of these things, which King could have achieved somehow, he decided to just switch narrative structure and, <laughs> and do it this way. I don't know that for a fact, but it feels like it. Yeah, he's pretty much said that in different interviews because people have asked him about this. And he specifically said like, yeah, I started telling the story and all of a sudden Dennis is in a coma and I couldn't tell it from his perspective anymore. It's not like Dennis just happened to be in a coma. You actually wrote him into the coma king. So you're yeah. you're responsible for that. And is it one of those things where, shit, I've written one third of the story and I'm not going to go back and change all the eyes to <laughs> away or am I just going to like bullshit my way through? You make an interesting point though about is there a way he could have done this in story? Mm. And there is, right? He could have had a paragraph at the the end of the last chapter that said, 
Now, the rest of this is what I've heard from different people, and I'm making jumps or assumptions along the way, and I'm going to tell it the best as I can based on that. Yep. And King didn't choose to do that. There's a lot of implications down the line because of this. So one of the things I thought of is that narrators have told nonfiction books or in a fictional way, in Cold Blood by Truman Capote is a good example, right? Where it's told where the narrator has describes events that there's no way they could know about and they're making guesses. And they could have done that with this. But one of the things I thought about is that that would make the story potentially less real. Like if we heard it third hand and if Dennis is like, well, this is what I heard from so-and-so and I'm piecing it together, it would make Dennis more of an unreliable narrator, which I was starting to think about in the last section. Like, mm-hmm. can we trust Dennis's story here? Like, or is he making things up and he's got a certain reason to tell it the way he is telling it. But once you go to this third person omniscient, we know that this is the way the story is being told and this actually happens. So when we see Christine run down and kill Moochie, we know that that's exactly what has happened. Christine has killed somebody. And if we had heard it sort of secondhand, we could write it off like, well, that couldn't be, right? Like a car can't drive itself and and run somebody over with malice. And so it would take us out of the story in, in another way. So I think that that's one of the benefits of having it be this sort of omniscient narrator is that like, okay, we can at least know that in the world of the story, these events actually happen the way that they're being described to us. I agree. I think maybe the nature of this book, the fact that it is about a demon car that wants to kill people and does kill people, there are certain limitations still that King needs to work within. Mm. If he made it some sort of epistolary or, or something where it's like a collection of news clippings and stuff like like Bram Stoker's Dracula or something like that, where all of the information is objectively true, it would still be speculative information based on reporting and observations and things like that. If we saw a newspaper clipping of Muchi's death, we wouldn't know anything about the fact that Christine did it without anybody behind the wheel. It just couldn't be information that a reporter would know. Right. Unless the reporter happened to be standing on the side of the street <laughs> watching it happen, and then that reporter would probably meet the same fate as Moochie. So King probably found himself in this corner and realized, if I do approach A, it won't work. If I do approach B, it won't work. My only option is to go third person omniscient and call it a day, because yep. I need to convey this information in a way that is reliable and give my audience all of the information, not just what certain characters know. Right. And that's important for us to understand the plot and to understand the stakes of the story. We can't just keep assuming that Christine maybe is evil, maybe is possessed by some sort of demon power. At this point, we need to know. The only way we can know for sure is the approach that King took. But to your point, like he could have maybe gone back and changed the structure of the first part so it's all third person omniscient yep. and then it would at least remove that jarring shift like why not just write the whole book that way right somewhat of a spoiler but like it's going to go back to Dennis's point of view in the back third of the novel and so we're going to get that switch again and it really is just sort of like hey this middle section we're just going to have a different narrator and Dennis isn't quite as involved other than i think we have like two hospital scenes that are Dennis with Lee and Dennis with Arnie and we get some of what Dennis is thinking about, but not in that first person perspective. But then we also get to see what the other characters are thinking about, which is interesting. And it might change our views because, again, 
we're not having that filtered through Dennis. So uh, lots of people have pointed this out and it it's such a big change that we had to discuss it as well. Very cool. So it took us this far, the first third of the novel, Dennis thinks something's up with Christine, but it's all scary dreams and him just having weird feelings, right? Like he can't put his finger on what exactly is going on. And this section we see, nope, there's something with this car, right? Uh-huh. It's actually fixing itself for sure. We know for a fact that it is it, it's fixing itself. We're seeing Arnie transforming his personality in, in real ways. We've seen it took us till halfway through the book, but Christine actually kills somebody and maybe almost attempts to kill Lee. It, it almost seems as if Christine is a metaphor for something else here, perhaps. Yeah, as you and I have been reading this book and considering various aspects of it, it does seem that like maybe Christine and Christine's effect on Arnie is maybe a, a metaphor for addiction. Mm. There is an intense way that Christine both simultaneously transforms Arnie in good ways, but also dramatically impacts him in negative ways. And it makes him act like somebody who ultimately alienates everybody around him who cares for him. And that's a lot like when you're dealing with drug addiction, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Like cocaine makes you feel good and it gives you energy and makes you feel like you have a thousand ideas every second, but eventually you're going to run out of money and it's going to destroy your parts of your body. And it's kind of like, you know, Christine is a hell of a drug, right? It makes Arnie look better. His appearance gets so much better, but his body's falling apart. He's looking more and more gaunt. He's looking more and more sickly. His back is all messed up and he needs to wear a brace and he has a giant limp. And when people see him, their first glance is like, you look like you're about to die. What, what's what's up with that? And he's 17, 18-year-old right. kid who should be in the, the prime of his life. Yeah, you compare him to somebody who has been addicted to drugs for years, then his description starts to sound like it makes sense. Yep. He's got that confidence mm-hmm. that you might get when you're on drugs, right? Like he is able to ask Lee out when he wouldn't do before. He sticks up for himself more. He talks back to his parents. So he's got these personality changes too, but the other part of that addiction is just the way it puts this wall between him and everyone else, that it becomes the most important thing, Christine, in his life. Uh, at one point, he says something like the three things that are most important, that he was alive and that Christine was fine and that you know he had a job. He doesn't even think about his girlfriend or his family or his friends. It's just like Christine, Christine, uh-huh. Christine. And, and people notice this as well, obviously. I was wondering if this is personal to King, right? Like, this is the early 80s when he's writing this. We know for a fact that, you know, King was both addicted to alcohol and he was doing cocaine on a regular. And I'm wondering if this is just sort of a way of him putting to some of what is in his life down on the paper here that Christine maybe represents his cocaine addiction. That might be taking it a step too far, but you could make that point, I think. I don't think it's a step too far. I think it's a pretty spot on assumption to, to make. If The Shining was about a father dealing with addiction and being terrified of what he might do to his family if he allows the addiction to take him to certain places, this is another book where instead of a haunted hotel, it's a haunted car. Yep. And we see what happens when that haunted car begins to take the addict too far. All of Arnie's transformations are not 
bad, as I, I mentioned earlier, part of his personality and his appearance are, are vastly improved, even to the point where Lee has fallen in love with him. And she even takes some personal credit for how Arnie has come out of his shell. She feels that Arnie has bloomed and felt even a smug, pleased satisfaction to, to that effect, where she was attributing it to the fact that she was the one who has drawn him out of his shell, that she has done this. And I don't doubt that, that she had some impact on that, but it wasn't just her, and it wasn't even mostly her. No. It's all Christine, really. And it was what Christine has done to change Arnie that made it so that Lee would find him appealing in the first place, I think. Right. She eventually got to know him well enough that the old Arnie would have appealed to her too. But I don't think that his really bad acne and his almost crippling insecurity and antisocial behaviors that he had, or awkward social behaviors that he had, I don't think he would have been able to surpass those and she wouldn't have seen past them. But now that he's got Christine booing his personality, he's able to draw the eye of, of somebody like Lee. Yeah. And you get this sense that at first he thinks, I've just got it all, right? Mm -hmm. I've got the girl, I've got the car, you know, my life's on the fast track. And I would imagine that people who have addictions to certain drugs think that at sometimes too, right? I've got everything under control. There's no problems here. Everything's going fine. But then when things start to fall apart, you have to start making those decisions on what's going to be important to me. And he's already pushed his parents away. Mm -hmm. He's already not being as close to Dennis as he was. And by the end of this section that we've read, he's pushed Lee away. And that's when you see what has started off as just sort of a benign relationship with something, whether that be a car or drugs or anything, has become an addiction and an obsession. And like addicts, there's this point where the person who is addicted is sort of on that teetering point where they're like, no, I'm not really addicted, or maybe I am, but I can get myself out of this. And at one point, King writes, a look of desperate sadness passed over Arnie's face, the look of someone so bewildered and entangled and weary of struggling that he hardly knows anymore what he is doing. And you get that sense that like he doesn't want to be obsessed. He doesn't want to be addicted. He wants to not be in the thrall of this car, uh -huh. but it's too late. Because he's pushed everything away, he doesn't have anything else to grab onto, anything to anchor him. And he's just going to dive straight into the addiction. And we get that scene at the end where he's like, all the shitters are going to pay. Like, basically, it's me and you against the world, Christine. Yeah. It's to the point where Arnie, in any moment of conflict or nervousness or any challenging point, has to touch Christine and that makes him feel better. It's not even like it's a, a magic talisman of some kind that, from a fantasy story. It's more like getting another dose of drugs. Mm. It's like, oh, my hands are getting shaky. I need another shot of whiskey or I needed to do another line of, of cocaine or something like that. And then I'll settle down. I'll, I'll get right. And it's like, I, I just need to touch Christine. So as soon as he touches Christine, it's like the world straightens back out. He's on an even keel and he's ready to handle whatever's going on. Yep. This happens over and over again in this section until finally the last thing that happens is he tells Lee to fuck off and Right. Drives off in Christine saying, they're there. We still have each other. Yeah. And there's these great scenes where 
he like loses track of time completely mm-hmm. when he's in Christine. Like King makes it sound like he's just floating around and he's lost track of time. And then he's a different place where he was and he doesn't know what happened. Or how, I mean, that sounds so much like folks who go on a blackout, blackout or trip or manic thing. And they're like, where am I? Why am I here? How did I end up here? Oh yeah, it's okay. It was the drugs. Yep. So I think the big question though, and one that you and I have talked a little bit about is we're pretty clear that the car is haunted mm-hmm. and that Christine is evil, but there's so much in this section about LeBay and the ghost of LeBay that's sort of either with Christine and Arnie or in some way almost possessing Arnie, where Arnie's mother Regina looks into him sleeping in his room and at first she sees an old man with loss of hair and she's like, wait a minute, what? And then she realizes, oh no, that's Arnie. And other people have mentioned that. And then yeah. you mentioned the back brace, which is very similar to what or what happened to LeBay, and it's happening to to Arnie as well. And I wasn't sure what was happening here. Is is it Christine that's haunted? Is it is it LeBay that's haunted and makes Christine haunted? Is it something both? But like there's something weird going on here. It is weird. And you and I both noticed this and were puzzled by it. And I suspect that the fact that we're both puzzled by it means that either I hope there's some explanation for it later in the book, or it's just not working. Mm. This construct isn't working for us. And, and and I'll just say that thus far at this point in the book, what we know, this doesn't work for me. Maybe this is because the movie has had such an impact on me. And the way that John Carpenter streamlined the story in his adaptation, there is no such like concept that it's anything but a haunted car. And that is clean. That works. It's it's just the car went from LeBay to Arnie. And now it's Arnie's problem and our and <laughs> and everybody who in Arnie's sphere has to deal with Christine. I don't know what's going on. Is it all the questions you asked, but it's like it, it's just puzzling. Sometimes Arnie's driving in Christine or having a dream about driving Christine and LeBay is in the the shotgun seat. Yep. It's just the two of us in our car, right? And sometimes when Christine is supposedly driving without a person in the car, it's actually kind of like it's the ghost of LeBay actually driving Christine. So what is the deal? Was Christine haunted before LeBay died? Or did Christine become haunted when LeBay died? Right. I don't know. And is that the magic? you know, that's going on here? Is that the source of the evil? Is it that LeBay was such an awful, awful person? His terribleness is what has made Christine evil. Or is it the other way around? And because it's unclear to us, it's sort of messy in the story, right? Yeah. Are we supposed to think that it's Christine that's turning Arnie into what he's turning into? Or is it LeBay that's doing that? Or is it that Christine has such an effect as is sort of parasitic? Like that's what we thought at first, right? Like mm-hmm. when we talked about there's this time for moving on and when LeBay realized he was on his way out, he had to sell Christine and Christine picked somebody new. But the fact that LeBay is still hanging around makes it seem weird. Yeah. There's an interpretation of Christine's behavior that more closely matches the Carpenter movie where Christine is is its own thing with its own consciousness and its own motivations, which include jealousy which would make sense for why Christine would want to remove Lee from Arnie's life because Christine is jealous of Lee. Yep. LeBay wouldn't care 
LeBay wouldn't care if Arnie has a girlfriend. No. And if you rewind the clock to when LeBay was Christine's owner and LeBay had a wife and child, his kid choked to death in the car, just like Lee did, but Lee didn't die. Back then, it seemed like maybe Christine was jealous of LeBay's family. So there, it seems like it's the car was already evil. The car already had magical powers to affect the world around it or maybe within it and do these things like cause a choking to happen. Right. Yeah, it's just not quite adding up. And you know what? We're we're probably going on and on about this when <laughs> it, you know, the next chapter is going to clarify everything and we probably have listeners who are like, you dum-dums, th- this all clears out in chapter 37. But right now, at this point, it just it doesn't seem like it makes sense. No. I mean, it's obvious that there is something going on with LeBay. People see LeBay in Arnie, even if they don't know who LeBay is. Like, There's people who've never met LeBay, but sort of see him in Arnie. Arnie's taking on his attributes, yet Christine is also her own thing, perhaps. And I would even buy a theory that just popped in my head that Christine loved LeBay, or, or I don't know if that's the right word, but Christine is trying to remake Arnie in LeBay's image, in a sense, bring her original owner back mm. by transforming Arnie into him. But why would LeBay's phantom still exist? Why would he be riding shotgun? Yeah. Why would he? I, I don't get it. It still doesn't add up for me. I love this book. It is so well written, even though it has weird things happen in it, like narrative structure changes. <laughs> I think if it has any flaw, it is this. I think King didn't really figure out which track he was on here. That is it the car, or is it LeBay, or is it some combination of the two? And perhaps those two lanes will merge at some point. I'm using car metaphors. I know, I like it. Or maybe they won't, and we'll just go all the way to the end of the story, and we'll never really have a clear image, but we'll see. Right. How about some Dark Tower Thinnies, Jay? I was not able to find any Thinnies in this section of the book. How about you? Neither was I. I was looking, but nothing. So anybody out there got any? Yeah. If uh, any of our listeners, you found any Thinnies in here, please send them in. However. There is some yucking it up moments. Yeah, there were a nice handful of yucky, yucky moments in this. (laughs) I'll stick with one. Mine comes from when Christine is murdering Moochie. And at one point, the car strikes him so hard that the line is, the force of his strike was hard enough to cause him to rebound into the street again leaving a splash of blood on the brick like an ink blot. Splat. <laughs> and actually, it's almost comical, but it still sounds pretty yucky for a human body to hit a wall so hard that it bounces back all the way back across the sidewalk and then lands in the street again. Which reminded me of the movie adaptation of, of Desperation that we just watched and did a bonus episode on where David Carver's friend Brian is struck by a car on his bicycle. And in this TV movie adaptation, it looked like a couple of strong people just threw this child actor through the air onto a mattress because he is airborne for a long time. And then his body goes splat and rebounds off of a house. <laughs> that's, that's right. It does. 
So if you want to hear more about that conversation, check out our Patreon feed at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. My gross moment is relatively tame. It's in that same scene with Moochie. The edge of Christine's bumper barely flicked his left calf and took a chunk of meat. And I have like an issue with the back of my legs. Like I get nervous, like if somebody touches like the back of my knee and my calf. So I think that that might be why that one. So now we know two things. My teeth are an issue and back of my legs are an issue. (laughs) Eventually we'll have a full psychological profile on you, Sean, and know how to manipulate you. Well, I could look at Moochie's blood like an ink blot, and we could find out like what sort of Rorschach test that could be. Exactly. The the other sort of yucking it up I considered was, I think Lee vomits possibly three or four times in this in this section of the book. She vomits when they see Christine destroyed at the parking lot. She pukes up getting the Heimlich maneuver, the piece of meat. She throws up at least once, possibly twice after that as well, before she finally breaks up with Arnie. So at least three, possibly four times she vomits in this section. So I don't know, takes me out of it a little bit. Yeah, it is a lot of vomiting, but King isn't terribly graphic about the details the way he is sometimes with some of the other things we've we've covered in our yucking it up moments. Yeah, but I just wanted to point it out. It wasn't like she had her entrails like dragging behind her. Like in The Running Man. Catching, yeah, catching on airplane parts like in Running Man. Well, Jay already mentioned it before, but we also want to mention our Patreon page where you can support the show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes like our discussion of the Desperation TV movie, our previous discussion of the Quantum Leap episode with Dean Stockwell that references Stephen King and others. You can visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. And we'd also like to thank our new patron, Tyler S., who recently joined at the Gunslinger level. Thank you, Tyler. Yeah, I hope you're enjoying the show. Sean, is it time to do some fun stuff? I got a whole bunch of them, Jay. Awesome. I got quite a few as well. Let's get into it. All right. This is a call back to a few episodes ago. Arnie's in a very big fight with his parents, especially his mom, and he really lays into her and says, but the fact is you were always the one who picked out my school clothes, my school shoes, who I was supposed to play with and who I couldn't. You decided where we were going on vacation. Or you told him when to trade cars and what to trade for. And I wanted to point out that school clothes and school shoes are both hyphenated. What? I have never seen those words hyphenated. School clothes hyphenated? School shoes hyphenated? Come on, King. Now I'm obsessed with King's use of hyphens in words that don't need it. And his editor's not removing them. Now I'm thinking it's King. It's 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 not the editors. It's King. And King's just sort of telling the editors, nope, stat, leave that in. Well, I suppose as, as the writer, he's got some editorial veto power, right? As the podcaster, I say, no, no hyphens like that. There is no need for a hyphen in those those instances, that's for sure. I wanted to call out a line that I liked a lot, and it was just kind of setting the scene. Late that Thanksgiving night, a cold wind rose, first gusting, then blowing steadily. The clear eye of the moon stared down from a black sky. The last brown and withered leaves of autumn were ripped from the trees, and then harried through the gutters. They made a sound like rolling bones. It's this type of thing that always makes me think that King is just not recognized enough for the quality of his prose, and it's all around this book. It's got kind of a silly premise. It's about a haunted car that kills people, but it's written like this. So how could you not like it? 
not only that, but there's times when it's pretty funny, Jay. Uh-huh. And I'm going to point out when Arnie takes Lee up in Christine to like this lookout point, basically, over the town. And uh, he's putting the moves on her like a newly confident Arnie can, and she seems to sort of encourage it and want it. But then she she backs off and says, I can't hear. And Arnie says, the embankment? <laughs> like, <laughs> And she means the car, but I just, the way I could just sort of picture him saying like the embankment, like why, if, why not here? That's why we're here, isn't it? And it, I just sort of thought when I read that, I laughed out loud because it was just sort of like this weird aside, like it shows how clueless Arnie can be sometimes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was a good one. Well, you just mentioned something that was funny. This is something that I thought was kind of scary. And this was, again, going back to the scene where Christine is murdering Moochie. And the line that I wanted to call out was, Moochie screamed and could not hear himself scream because the car was still peeling rubber. The car was still shrieking like an insanely angry, murderous woman. And that shriek filled the world. I just have this picture of Moochie trying to run away and he can't even hear his own scream in his own head because of how loud the car is that's bearing down on him. That's something that could give me nightmares. Yeah. Successfully scary scene painted by King there. What else you got? For me, the scariest scene or maybe the spookiest scene was after Lee and Arnie pick up the hitchhiker on their way back from that Christmas shopping trip. And when Arnie leaves the two of them in the car together and Lee gets this, like, I can't believe he left me in a car by myself with a hitchhiker that we just met. Like, this is scary. And she looks back at him and thinks he sort of looks like Charles Manson. And then it does this twist where the guy's totally freaked out. Like, he's getting bad vibes from the car. Uh, He get bad vibes from Arnie. And he's just like, hey, man, I would not be in this car if I could help it. It sort of smells. I don't know what's going on. But that whole scene is super, super spooky to me, right? Mm -hmm. It's just really well done. And as you said, like, you could sort of think like it's silly that like, oh, there's a car running over people. But like when it's got this part of it and like you really get the sense that this guy's got claustrophobia and he's got, you know, this bad feeling about this car. And it really, it really got to me. But there's also a fun moment in there, too, where the hitchhiker says, sometimes I think I never should have given up on drugs, you know? (laughs) It made me think of Airplane when Robert Stack keeps like, looks like I picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. Yes. Looks like I picked the wrong week to stop sniffing glue. (laughs) Yep. Seems like a lot of my fun stuff are basically just quotes of great things I wanted to talk about. There's a, a wonderful line here that I have in my my book of quotes that goes all the way back to when I to when I first read Christine. It's talking about Arnie's mom and part of why she is the way she is. And the line is when you had to burn to have your own way, you always wanted to have it. Mm. And I don't really agree that, you know, his mom should be the way that she is with with Arnie and and how she raises her son, but a line like that helps me get closer to understanding and sympathizing with her. She's had to fight for everything that she's had in her life, everything she's achieved from early childhood till now. And doesn't make her the world's greatest parent, but it makes me understand why she is the person she is. Hmm. And probably something you couldn't have gotten from Dennis Gilder's perspective. So another place Absolutely where third person pers- or third person narrator helps out. Yep. 
All right, I've got one silly rant here. When Buddy Repperton and crew comes to destroy Christine, they know that they're safe because there's not going to be a lot of traffic in the parking lot because the flight from Cleveland to Pittsburgh hasn't come in. And so they'll be alone in the parking lot where they could destroy Christine. And for those of us in the Midwest, you know that Cleveland and Pittsburgh are basically like 100 miles apart. It's it's an hour and a half drive, especially with where the airport's located. You're not going to be taking a flight from Cleveland to Pittsburgh. I, I made a point of looking like, could I get a flight from Cleveland to Pittsburgh? And you can. It's one stop in Boston before you get to Pittsburgh. So um, <laughs> maybe it was different in the 70s when this happened, but uh, most people are going to just jump in a car and drive from Cleveland to Pittsburgh. But what do I know? I think things were just different in the 70s. People got in planes all the time, living that jet set life. I mean, exactly. hey, man, I had to spend the night in Pittsburgh. Screw Cleveland. Let me get in a plane and head to the, the strip district and see the Penguins play. And or do whatever you do. Or whatever you do in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Whatever yins do. We both had a couple of things in fun stuff regarding how King is making hay of the word fury mm. in this book. And of course, Christine is a Plymouth fury. The thing I wanted to call out here was that there was a line about Lee I think when she was choking in Christine, she felt a mad fright invade her brain and she thought, it is the smell of her fury. I thought, Plymouth fury? Before this, Arnie is fighting with his mom and has no holds barred fury. And again, just sort of making hay of it. And it, it caused me to stop and think like, fury is a weird sort of name for a brand of car, make and model of car. Like, like you wouldn't call a, for, a car like a Chevrolet Anger. Or Toyota Jealousy. Like, fury is a weird word. It's an emotion. Lots of cars are named after animals or weapons or things that like make you feel like strong or powerful. Like my Ford Flex. Exactly. You can't, you can't get away from those, those biceps when you're <laughs> riding in a Ford Flex. I can't think of another car that's named after an emotion. Not like this. Like, especially that emotion, right? Fury. Like, it's not something that you would be like, hey, my brother's really furious. I'm really like, it's not necessarily a good, a good emotion to, to be around, but it works so well in the book, right? Like it's just this sort of added layer of like, Christine is angry. She's a Plymouth Fury. Like it makes sense. Yeah. It's almost like that's why King chose that model of car. I, I think he did rewrite that because my understanding was a Ford Fairlane at first and he just like... Kept saying stuff. It's the smell of her fair lane or no holds barred fair lane. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't work so well. No, but it, now that you're there, like anytime you see the word fury, though, you're going to think like, oh, okay. Yep. It's the car too. Yeah. I did a search in my Kindle edition and the word fury is in the book like just about 50 times. And it is either the name of the car when that's mentioned, but that's, that's only a, a small proportion of it. Most mm. of it is just the word. And I I know like statistically, like I'm sure we could find lots of other words like that in the book that happen even more frequently, but it's interesting that that word fury comes up over and over again. Yeah. I don't know how many times we see the word fury in like, say the dark half or something like probably not that often. Right. Yeah. And it, it's something like, I think we're so used to like talking about cars. We just sometimes don't think of like what they're actually named for. Like we were talking about this, like an Impala is like a gazelle. Like, okay, yeah. whatever. 
Well, like the Lamborghini Countach, apparently Countach translates to, oh my. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so that's kind of an emotion. Yeah, I guess. I can't believe that car exists. Oh my. Oh my. All right. Well, it is time for things that are happening outside of the Stephen King universe in our other worlds than these section. You want to kick us off? Sure. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts that is not two guys to the dark tower.com or two guys to the dark, whatever the hell our <laughs> podcast is. You like is our called. podcast so much, you don't even know the name. That one that Jay and that dude Sean do. One of my favorite podcasts that I listen to on a weekly basis is the Grierson and Leach podcast. It's two friends and film critics who talk about the latest movies and often go back and talk about older movies. And one of those co hosts, Tim Grierson, recently put out a book called This Is How You Make a Movie. And it is a a very straightforward book that divides the art of making movies into sections on editing, directing, writing, and then like the different pieces of that. So like tight zooms, editing wipes, directing comedies, script writing, those types of things. And then he talks about it with three different examples from different movies. And he'll have a still of the movie and he'll talk about why that scene or that movie really depicts what he's talking about when it comes to deep focus or improvisation or things like that. So quick and easy book to read. They're not necessarily things that I didn't know, but I've never had a film class before. And so everything I've just sort of picked up, but it was, it, it's made me a little bit better at talking about movies and why things are done the way they're done and really gives me a better understanding of the art of making movies and why directors, producers, writers, editors, sound engineers make the decisions they make. Lighting is another one. So mm. I don't think like you could take that and say like, okay, I'm going to go out and make a movie, but it'll help you understand why decisions are made and make you look at things in a different way when you're watching TV or movies now and say like, oh, that's why that scene is lit like that. Or that's why this camera angle is like that. So mm -hmm. That's great. I want to check that book out. If you like that podcast or you like the way that that book teaches you about movies through the analysis of existing films, check out the podcast Beyond the Screenplay, which is the mm. podcast arm of Lessons from the Screenplay, which is a YouTube channel. I watch and listen to both regularly, and they are a team of filmmakers. They've all like gone to film school. They've all done some, I don't know, I don't want to call them amateur filmmakers. They, they are actually experts in their fields, but they're just not famous for their films yet. They're screenwriters, they're movie makers. They know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So they talk about movies and some TV shows. And uh, I learn a lot in every episode that they talk about. And they talk about why things work and why things don't. It's great. Yeah. And check them out. The other thing that was great about this book is it introduced me to a bunch of movies that I've either never heard of or never seen before and made me want to be like, oh, I should add that to my list of movies mm. that I want to watch, which is always good. How about you, Jay? What's going on in your world? I'd say my latest obsession, but it's kind of been going on for, I don't know, three, four months now, is this British show called Taskmaster. Mm. The premise is fairly simple. A group of comedians, five comedians are the contestants. And there is a taskmaster and his assistant. And the taskmaster is the judge, basically. And the assistant is the one who runs the tasks. And the tasks can be just about anything. For example, there's one that's like, get this potato into this 
hole, like it's like a golf hole without touching the green. And that's it. Like no other parameter. The way to win is to like kind of think around the loopholes. And it's like, well, okay, I can't touch the green, which means I can't walk up to the hole and put the potato in. Right. But what if I could put something on top of the green and walk on that and then just drop it in? But half the people like stand all the way outside the green and try to throw the potato in and they don't get it in. And then the potato's stuck on where they can't reach it. And hence the comedy ensues. Right. And since all of these tasks are just like, they're bizarrely creative, they very rarely do the same task twice. And you have to wait like many, many seasons before you might see a variation of the same task. There's always something new going on. The contestants are comedians, so they're always being funny and entertaining. It keeps switching back and forth from them doing these tasks in whatever environment the task requires to a studio audience environment where it's a live studio audience and they're being judged at this point. Mm. So they're like, all right, we saw everybody do the task. Let's see who won the task. And then the taskmaster will give them a score based on how well they accomplished the task. And there have been moments on this show that I have laughed so hard. Like it is one of the funniest shows I've been on because it's basically reality TV. It's right. It's not scripted really at all. It's the magic I'm sure comes from the editing, but I've seen some amazing ways that people have decided to complete their tasks. And it's just, it's great. So there are all these shows, all the episodes, full length episodes are available on YouTube. Just look them up, Taskmaster, on YouTube and start on season one, or as the Brits call it, series one, and (laughs) just enjoy. It's a great show. Sounds good. I'll have to check it out. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Christine, chapters 35 through 42. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. funny that you had an idea pop in your head and I had one in mine. And mine is that Christine's like Venom in Spider-Man, right? It's a symbiote. Hmm. And at first it's stuck to Peter Parker, but then it goes off and does its own thing, but it has jealousy involved as well. I'm just coming up with this on the fly, but I think somebody could do a a whole little thing about how, how Christine and Venom are the same sort of evilness. <laughs> so, uh, so Christine is just another Spider-Man villain. Spider-Man villain. <laughs> yes. Uh